presents his experiences with the man who never told a lie, Ben Lilly. Now, here's Dale. Well, I've been asked many times by many different people. In my estimation, who I thought was the greatest hunter that I'd ever known or ever heard of, and especially in my time. Of course, Ben Lilly was a much older man than I was. And to me, he was the greatest hunter that ever hit the, the country out there, a hunting, a hunting line and bear. Now, I saw Ben Lilly, but when I seen him, he had uh, already more or less lost his mind, and he couldn't carry on a, an intelligent conversation with him, so I never tried to talk to him. But uh, this brother Ernest run on to him, I think it was either two or three different times in his travels, and he talked to, to Ben Lilly several different times. And uh, now this Ben Lilly was from Louisiana, and he started out hunting down in there, and then he went over and hunted for many years in the uh, in the big thickets, they call it, there in Texas. And they claimed that he could go to the edge of that big thicket and take his knife and stick it in one of those big trees, and then he could go way around and come right through the, the, those thickets, and this is how keen that his directions were, and come right through that thicket and come right up to that tree and reach up and take out his knife and take that knife out of that tree. And I don't doubt it a bit because now he hunted lots of country, and far as I know, he was could really keep his directions. But I know one time that uh, Ernest asked him, says, Mr. Lilly, was you ever lost? Well, he said, no, I don't guess I really badly lost. But he says, as much country as I've been in, in strange country and all that, he said, I've had a little trouble uh, with my directions a few times, but I always made it out. <clears throat> now, Ben Lilly hunted quite a lot in that country down in there where I started out to hunting in Arizona, but he was mostly from New Mexico. And at one time there, right up in the mountains where Clell and I, in the White Mountains of Arizona, where we've done lots and lots of hunting, he got after one of some of the last of the grizzlies in that country, and he run that grizzly, and it was in the fall and winter time when the snow was getting high deep in the mountains, and he trailed that uh, grizzly for three days, and he finally killed him right up on top of that mountain there in, the, in, the, in a canyon called Horton Creek that I've been in many times. And the, the bar had finally went into his, I guess his hibernation den, and he got up there, and the bar come out, and he killed him. And so he, to my notion, is the greatest hound hunter. For one thing, he had the stamina, more stamina, and could stand more and keep a-going better than any man that I've ever known. Well, now, one time up there, 
close to the blue that I've hunted many, many times in many years. Ernest and uh, John Kelly, his brother-in-law, and uh, ben, and uh, Arthur Lee was camped over on the Solis. That was in New Mexico, and the blue is in Arizona, right close to the line there. And the old man Lily came in that late that afternoon and made a camp right close to them. And uh, so he came up and visited the dark at their camp, and they talked till 2 o'clock in the morning. Then he left and went to, back to his camp at 2, and at 4 that morning, he was back there, was back by their camp at 4 the next morning. And he said, now, Mr. Lee, he was very awful polite. He said, Mr. Lee said, now, I'm headed for the blue. I'm going to the blue post office and I'm going to meet Mr. Jones over there at 10 o'clock and I'm going to take him a hunting. And Ernest says, well, how far is the cross there, Mr. Lilly? He says, it's 25 miles. And it went up over a good big high mountain, but he had a trail all the way. And he had six hounds tied to his belt because he would was sure that he didn't want to run anything or going across there. <clears throat> and the way he done it, he had one hound tied to his belt, and then he had uh, five, uh, five more on rings on that rope. So he talked there for just a few minutes, and when he left, well, there he went. He didn't go in a, in a trot or a walk. Ernest said it looked to him like it was kind of a half pace and shuffle, and away he went, and he never told him goodbye or anything. He was just a-talking and went out of hearing, and away he went for the blue. Now, now these days, there's a road that follows almost that same trail that he traveled many years ago, and I've been over it many times, and what I mean, it's a, that's a rugged goal for a man afoot and uh, leading a bunch of hounds like that to be there by 10 o'clock that morning. But he was confident that he'd be there, and I'll, I'll bet my money that he was there. Now, when he would be out of hunting there, he would hunt a lot of times in, in the dead of winter when it was lots of snow on the ground, and he told Ernest that he had uh, sleep a lot of the time by campfire and would, instead of laying down right in the snow or wet ground, he'd kind of lean up against a tree. And he said that he never needed over four hours sleep. That if you slept over four hours, well, you were just sleeping when you didn't need it. Now, this, now to show you the stamina that this, this old man had, when he came into that New Mexico country, he walked from the big thicket of Texas, which is down there not too far out of Houston, and he walked and he hunted with his dogs and brought his dogs and came in to New Mexico there. And uh, he went up and was headquartered for years up on a big ranch in the Black Range of New Mexico that they call the GOSs. And there for a long time, his headquarters was just a big cave 
on the Gila River. And uh, he would have his hounds and everything, and he'd have to pack that stuff for him and his hounds in there, either on burros or on his back. But he he used burros sometimes to pack his stuff on, but he hunted afoot all the time. And when you go to hunting afoot on the, after those lion and bear, well, now, that's lots of stamina. But for quite a few years, his hearing was bad. So here's the way he would work it. He would keep one hound tied to him to, to trail the, the other hounds and the animal that they was after until he'd get up close enough that he could hear them treed. And he always kept a hound, and he, he called that hound there for several years. He called him his ears because that hound would uh, take him to him. Of course, there was no, no man alive or ever will be, I don't think, that could get up and run with a good fast hound and keep up with him through those mountains. But now he done a wonderful job, and at one time when he was a bit, talking to Ernest, well, he said, uh, Mr. Lee, he said, it's always been my ambition to kill a hundred bar in a year. But he says, you know, says, I've never reached that. But he says, I have killed 98 in one year, two different years. Well, now, when he came into that GOS ranch that sat on the Black Canyon, that would be a fork of the Healy River up in, uh, in the Black Range there, well, this was a big ranch. And they were having lots of trouble with mountain lions and bear of doing killing on their cattle. And so they hired the old man Lily and gave him a bounty. In those days, they was giving him $100 a lion or a, a bear if they, they thought the bear was doing any damage apiece. And now I don't know why that the old man got his money and made his, but before that, he came out there, he would hunt, and he was also in the cattle business in uh, Louisiana, and he made, might have made quite a little money in cattle. But I don't know why, but he said, Mr. Lee, he says, at one time, says, I had money in 15 different banks. And during the Depression, these banks went bankrupt. And he said, uh, 12 out of the 15 went uh, broke, and I lost my money. But he says, I'm a building back up again. And now he also guided, he also guided hunters. Uh, I mean, clients, just like I did in my brothers for years and years. And, and uh, this sh I'll show what famous people that he did uh, guide. Now, President Theodore Roosevelt had him at one time in his camp as his main hunter. And, uh, and they had a huge, huge camp. And the old, the old man Lily would go out and, uh, and catch stuff and then come back and get them. And, th and then they'd go with him and get and get the game. That's the way he worked that. And uh, but here's one thing 
that I've never heard another man of doing. When he was up there in New Mexico, he had, he had some money in that sil the bank at Silver City, New Mexico. And maybe he had run out of uh, blank checks or lose them or something. And anyway, he could write a check just about on anything and they would honor it at that bank. And I don't know whether it's still there or not, but for years and years, he he uh, wrote a check to a fellow and he brought it in there on a piece of bark. And they the bank honored that check. And then quite often, he'd write a check on a piece of just common sack paper that, that like you put stuff in at the stores in, in paper bags. And he was that well known and he, he was that well respected that they would do that. But see now, when he lost all that money in those banks, that was before that the banks were ever backed by the government. And they and uh, after that, well, the the government would back a bank, and you and you couldn't hardly lose your money. Well, now this uh, this old man Lily had the reputation of being absolutely honest and absolutely truthful. And I've talked to lots of people that knew him, and I talked to lots of men that had been out on hunts with him. And I've never heard a man ever say that they ever doubted a word that that old man Lily ever told them. And I never heard of a man that ever thought that he ever told them a falsehood about anything that happened on a hunt or anything else. And he was, uh, oh, he was a great hunter. And one time he went way up into the middle or maybe the northern part of Idaho. And all right, he started back to New Mexico with his hounds. Now, and he walked from Idaho to the Black Range of New Mexico with his hounds, and he hunted off and on in the mountains as he came down. And uh, now he, he was a great, he was a great man, and he would carry sometimes a week's supply of stuff and never get to where he could get anything right on his back for him and his hounds. Of course, they, they went on awful slim rations, but he usually, most of the time, they'd eat cornmeal. And he'd make a little cornmeal mush for himself and, and, uh, and feed his dogs just a lot of the time, just dry cornmeal. Of course, he had killed game, too, and him and his hounds in would fill up. But uh, to me, he was kind of like a wild animal. He would fill up real good, and then he could go for a long time and before he'd have to eat again. He, he said he had just really load his stomach up, and then he had relaxed for a while. Then he was ready to go. But he was a peculiar fellow in lots of ways. Now, a lot of the time when he came into a place and they and they insisted on him having something to eat, rather than come in and sit down at a table and be in the house, he'd take his food and go out and sit down outside and eat. 
And he laid out, I don't see how he kept from freezing, because he laid out in bitter cold weather. But he would build a fire, and instead of laying down maybe lots of snow on the ground, he'd kind of lean up against a tree. And he said that a grown man never needed over four hours sleep out of the 24, and they should be able to keep a going if, after they'd had four hours sleep. And some, part of the time, well, he never would sleep but two hours out of the 24. One time, Ernest was uh, parked on the streets of Glenwood, New Mexico, and the old man Lily was camped back up there not too far, and he came into town to get a few supplies, and uh, they met and was a talking, so he came over to look at the look to take a look at the hounds and wonder. John Kelly, his brother-in-law, was with him, and Vincent uh, Lee was with him, with Ernest. And he walked up and took a good look at those hounds, and they didn't have, but, oh, they had five or six or seven men there. And he said, listen, and one little old hound there that was the sorriest-looking dog in the pack, and he was black, had brindle legs, and, uh, a little round dome, and he had saddle blanket ears. They just was medium length, but they didn't roll. They just hung down from his head like a saddle blanket. And he had big kind of pop eyes for a hound. And the old man really says, Mr. Lee, says, do you want to sell that dog? And Ernie says, no, I don't, Mr. Lilly. Well, he said, that's the smartest and the best hound you've got in that bunch. Now, he was, I guess, quite a judge of hounds because he hit it right because that was by far the best hound in that truck. Well, this happened somewhere around, oh, I'd say 28, 29, somewhere in that area. And now, this is about roping and tying a line. Now, Ernest, and Benson Lee were the first of the Lee brothers that ever roped and tied a grown line. And that was in a big basin called the Cave Creek Basin in the Cherry Cow Mountains. And that's what I call my home range because I started my first hunting in there and I lived in that range of mountains on the East, East Turkey Creek at a little old deserted mining town called Paradise. Well, they went out from Paradise that day horseback and went into the Cave Creek Basin, which the basin, when you hit the edge of it, is about only four and a half to five miles from home. Well, on the other side of that basin, where it went, broke over into the south fork of Cave Creek, was a big ridge line of fine pathway for lines, and they picked up this line strike. Now, this was a... a a grown, mature female, which when they tied her up was probably seven or eight years old. But in the two main hounds, well, the ones that they only had two good hounds on that hunt, was named Skip and Blue. And Blue is the one that uh, would look at the line track in the dirt. All right, 
they treed that line several times before they ever got a rope on it. Then they tied the dogs and jerked the line out and tied it. Now, the way they tied that line, they tied it's one of them held the rope that is on the head, and the other one got it by the tail and then tied its two hind feet together, then went up and looped its front feet. Now, when you're tying one, you've got to be careful because, of course, they can scratch you. And you got to be careful that you don't choke them too bad. And any time you choke them unconscious, you're taking a chance on killing them. But anyway, they got it tied up all right. And they, they, they came back. Oh, yeah, and they, they had hauled over there. I forgot to mention that. They had hauled over there that morning. They came back and put the, the hounds in the back of the pickup and they put their dogs in there with the line and came on to paradise. And so we took that line then and put a, a good heavy chain on it and a good heavy collar and tied it in an old building. See, this was an old deserted mining town and there was lots of old lumber buildings still standing around there. And we owned this old building so we tied this line right in the middle of the floor to where it could just barely get to the walls and on probably eight feet of chain, made to 10 feet. And all right then, so we had to have a name for that line. Well, just a short time before that, there was a woman by the name of Simple Amy MacPherson. And she belonged to some kind of religious group, and for publicity, she had went over just a little ways into Mexico, and she come out and walked into Douglas and claimed that she had been kidnapped. And we all knew that that was all farce. That was just a big publicity stunt. And so... That was all fresh on all, all, all of us's mind when that happened. So we named that line Simple Amy. Well, we kept that line from in the spring, tied it in this old building, and never took it out until in the fall. Well, we'd go down there and clean out her building and, and feed her. But one she got her, she got her loose. And she broke one length of chain that went right up to next to the snap. And she had the collar and the snap on in one length of chain when she was finally caught the next time. And she had been gone so long when we found out that she is gone that we could never trail her up and never jump her anymore. So that was... In October, I think. Well, the next spring, the last of February, first of March or something, Ernest and Vincent was back over a hunting again in that Cave Creek Basin. But right straight across from where they had tied her the first time, they hit this line track, and they had three hounds. They had Skip and Blue and another hound I've forgotten the name of. But Skip and Blue was lots of best pounds that they had that day of those three. Well, this other dog is the one that started this line. 
And Ernest got down and was walking along behind them, and Skip and Blue didn't act like they wanted to run that track. And Ernest hadn't found any line track, and he was getting suspicious the way this other hound was working this track, and Skip and Blue were just fooling around. They didn't want to run it. And finally, he found the, this line track, and he knew pretty well the size of it and all, that it was a female line. So he turned around to Vincent and says, listen, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll make you a bet that this is old Simple Amy. And uh, Vincent says, well, why do you figure that? Ernie says, Skip and Blue don't want to run her. Well, they treat her when she was tied up the first time, and they rode right in the pickup with her back to the paradise, and they knew that, that was old, those dogs knew by smelling of it that it was old Simple Amy. And they'd already called her. They didn't want to run her again. But Ernest kept going along with them and encouraging them and hissing them and telling them that they sure wanted to catch that line. And they got old Blue and Skip to working good on Simple Amy. Well, they trailed her a couple of miles. And this other hound run off after a deer. And old Blue and Skip kept trailing her. And they had made up their minds that it, if it was simple Amy, that they weren't going to, they wasn't going to kill her. They were going to tie her back up. Well, she went into what's called the, the Cave Creek Rims. And there's a big waterfall coming off there, and that waterfall must be, oh, at least 500 feet high. And huge rims around it, and, oh, and that line went into those rims. And... Now, they, of course, they had roped her out of a tree, and they had treated her four or five times before they finally got the rope on her, and old simple Amy just wasn't going to climb another tree, and she was just running those rims, and they're bad for dogs to get through, because a lion can jump off of a lot higher place than a dog can without being hurt, and a lion can also jump up uh, about three or four times higher place than a, than a dog can. And so they jumped her and was bringing her through there, and she was running those rims, and Vincent was quite a little ways from her, and he was a good shot, and he had a rifle, and he raised up and shot this line. Well, he said when she turned and fell, he thought he saw that collar around her neck. And uh, then they finally got to her in under these bluffs, and it was old simple Amy. And she had four unborn in her. They were already mature. I mean, not plum mature, but they were as big as about the size of, between the size of a big mouse and a rat, and already formed. And there were four of them. So that shows that lions will have as many as four, but we've caught quite a few that had four, but not, they, their usual litter is two and three. But the old man Lily told Ernest that he caught one that had five unborn dinner. And I believe that because the old man Lily was never known to state of falsehood. Well, now, you may think it sounds unreasonable for us to kill those mountain lions. Well, now, listen, those Mountain lions, 
done lots of damage to the ranchers and killed many head of stock farm. And when a man is a losing stock and it's a taking away his livelihood, he's going to try to do something about it. And the ranchers there, they would pay bounty, and also they had a whole string then in Arizona of government hunters that they paid a salary to do nothing but hunt predatory animals. And if a bear got to killing, they'd, they'd send them after bear. And But uh, they wanted them to keep the lines under control. Well, now, there was four of us Lee boys then that were active hunters and doing lots of hunting. There was Ernest and Vincent and Carol and I. Now, Ernest and Vincent were older men than Carol and I. And we could also hunt for bounty, and then two of us had jobs for, with the government, which was Ernest and Vincent. And then we would also take out lion hunt, hunters that were our clients and wanted a lion trophy. And uh, we could guide hunting parties and also hunt for bounty and the government at the same time. It was probably a 70, 75-pound hound when he matured, and he really made a lion dog. Well, we were going to run, we were running then, lion and bear both. Well, he never did amount to much after a bear. Now, the first bear, when he's just a little over a year old, we didn't usually start running, especially on bear. Our dogs fell after they were a year old. Now, now, I think that that's too, that's too fast. I don't think they ought to be run on bar until a year and a half to two years old. But anyway, this bar was treed, and this client wounded this bar, and it came out of the tree, and old Troop, we called him, Troop run over and grabbed that bar, and that bar turned around and got a hold of him and scratched him up and bit him and hurt him pretty bad. Well, you know, that put the kind of the fear into him of a bar. And now, but if he'd have had the real stuff in him, for a bar dog, that would not have bothered him, but it bothered him. So then later on, when we were running bar, and now this dog was a good, fast dog, and you could bet your boots that when that bar was jumped, and old Troop was either a leading the pack or he was running right up amongst the leaders that that was a little bear. But on a real big bear, old Troop would get out there and he'd get to the back of the pack and then get slower and slower. And lots of times he'd just quit the bear and turn around and come back to you and get behind your saddle animal. And he wouldn't even run a big bear any distance. Now, he could tell by the smell of whether that was a little bear or a big one. And to me, that proves that. Well, now, I explained a while ago about this hound when we were trailing old Simple Amy uh, running off after a deer. Now, deer running to a lion hunter is really their worst uh, thing that they can do because there's more deer. Of course, you don't want them to run a deer or fox or a coyote, but it's more important to have them deer broke 
than it is anything else because down in our country and in the lion country, deer is, is the biggest, by far the biggest problem. Then quite a few years later, was camped up in the Sierra Ancha Mountains and was a summering my dogs up there. And I had my, my mother and sister and brother-in-law up there in an old ranch house that was comfortable and they were taking care of uh, my extra dogs that I'd have to leave, and sometimes I'd be gone a day or two on a trip. Uh, and uh, they were paying me bounty there, and I was also a training hounds. Well, this Ben Green, he was really a chemist that had the hounds in, in uh, Phoenix, but he, he was a coon hunter. So, but he got to come into my camp, and uh, I'd let him go with me sometimes when I'd go lion hunting. So he came to my camp one evening, and I was getting ready to cross the mountain, this Sierra uh, Ancient Mountain, and going off into a big creek that's called Cherry Creek that runs into Salt River. Now, Salt then on down there several miles is this big dam that they call the Roosevelt Dam. Now, it was named after President Theodore Roosevelt. And so that day of going down, it, now this was in the summertime and, and in the, either July or August. And that is our rainy season out there. So we were trying to get across that mountain and we were crossed. And we crossed Cherry Creek on a line track, but it wasn't a very good track. Instead of going right on to that ranch, well, we was a coal trailing up there, and now all of the course is cloudy, and all of a sudden it cut loose, and it rained what I mean it rained. It just come down in sheets. And all those little creeks was running, and this Cherry Creek was running pretty big from flood water, and we finally crossed back across Cherry Creek and got to that ranch. And, of course, we had uh, slickers with us. And, but it was really a mess. And we got, got to this ranch, and I knew the people real well. Their names were uh, Ellison. Buster Ellison was uh, the old man's name. And they were good friends of mine. So they put us up that night and had a little feed there for our dogs. So the next morning, we started to go back across the mountain and was going to go back to our main camp. And we were riding right up one of these sand marshes that had run just the day before and was real wet. And uh, the hounds were right with us. And I looked down, and amongst all those dog tracks, I seen a lion track coming down the, this sand, and the hounds hadn't picked it up because the scent wasn't holding in that sand. And it was just pure sand. And I said, hey, wait a minute, Ben, here's a line track. Well, he said, how can you tell a line track from a dog track sitting there on that mule and all of those dog tracks are? I said, well, Ben, that line track looks as much different as you do in, in myself. I said, no, I don't look anything like you do. And that's the reason I know. So I jumped off my mule and didn't say a thing to the dog. And I just walked down 
this sand marsh a ways, and there was just one small rock sticking up. And that lion had stepped on that rock. And I could see where he left some sand on that rock and stepped on it. And I just turned around and I said, Say, Tex, come here. And this was a hybrid black and tan. And he was a real lion dog. And he was a well-trained dog. And I said, Come here, Tex. And old Tex trotted down there to me. And I just pointed to that rock. And I said, Tex, there's been a lion here. Smell of this rock. And when I pointed my finger at that rock, he just trotted over there and he just stuck his nose down and smelt right while I was pointing. And when he did, just the instant he smelled of that rock, well, he just raised his head and barked. And of course, when he barked, these other dogs run to him and I turned around and walked back up and got back on my mule and told Ben Green. I said, Ben, I had... Better not have to help them son of a guns anymore, because I know that line track was made last night. Well, they didn't go towards camp. They went back the other way and back on a big high mountain there, and it, in about four or five hours, they finally put this line in a hole in the rocks, and we got up there and killed it. Well, when we got this line out, we knew it was going to be way in the night if we went on the camp, so we just whooped around and went back to that ranch, and they put us up again at that ranch that night, and so we had to skin the lion and prepare the hide. So the next morning we got up early and took our lion hide, and we started back across that mountain. Well, before we got to the top of it, well, now one of our young hounds run off after a deer. Now, I was up there then and was a training hound and was also hunting for a bounty. I'd get $75 state bounty they was paying then, and then some of those ranchers, part of them, would pay me a bounty, and uh, that, the, that rancher's bounty amounted to $200, which is not anything for a line, but it does help buy some dog feed and a few groceries and kind of kind of helps along, and, but uh, the main thing was of uh, training those hounds and keeping them in condition so when fall hit, I'd be ready to roll and hunt all fall and winter and spring. Now, the summer months was our slack season. That's like May, June, July, and August would be our slack seasons, and that's when I'd go back into the high mountains and train dogs and, and hunt for bounty. All right, then we were going back across that mountain, trying to get back to our main camp. And this pup was a running the deer, and we were on one side of a big canyon, and he was on the other. And I hollered and hooped, and I squalled at him, and I couldn't make him stop. And I nearly cracked my voice trying to make him. And so I turned around then to Ben Green, and I said, Ben. These days and times, and as much as they know about electronics and all, I said, I should be able to mash a button here and shock him right good on that track over there and make him come right back to me. And uh, he said, well, you know, just never thought of that. 
but I believe that that can be done. And far as I know, that was the birth of the electronic strainer that started it right there. And within two years, well, he had had one made and came to my camp. And we would try it on one another then. Of course, they were crude affairs compared to the ones of these days. And he didn't have any testers, so we would walk out and test it on one another. <clears throat> and so I'd been shocked so many times, and what I mean is really bite it, that when I'd get out there and get the hole in that car and holding these prongs that would shock you, I'd get to jumping around a kind of nodding my head, just kind of like I had the St. Vitus dance or something wrong like that, because I know that thing is going to bite me. And now in a minute, well, I'd motion to him, and he'd turn the button on, and it usually did bite. And by golly, now they hit a pretty good wallop when you're holding them. Well, now this Ben Green, he came to my... He, he had been to my camp several times, and we'd worked on it and, and uh, tested them on one another. So I was camped at Double Seneca up in the White Mountains there, which is, uh, I was camped up close to 9,000 feet. And it's in the summertime. I think it was in June. And so we, he said, well, I've got it. I think they're working pretty good. So we tested it. And I held the palms and got out there a pretty good distance, I'd say 150 yards, and it really had to bite. So I said, well, that's good. Come on, let's try it. So we went back to, I come on back to the camp. He's standing right about in camp. And we saddled a couple of saddle animals. And I said, well, now over here in Barrow, I know of a salt lick that deer use a lot. And I said, there's quite a lot of deer around here. Let's just ride and make a circle here, and we should hit some deer. So I took this dog Speck, and he wasn't no pup. He was a, around a four-year-old dog. And he was one of the worst deer runners that I'd ever tried to break. And his mother and father trained pretty easy, and his father was one of the smartest hounds I'd ever had ever had. But this he had some ill blood in him somewhere because, uh, and I think it come from the father, because uh, this dog was really a, a hard dog to handle. So I took a trained dog and next old speck to him so he wouldn't run off without the car. So we rode along and rode over to, and down this little one prong of bar wallow there, the big canyon that runs into Black River. Uh, in the White Mountains there, and big timber all over, and then little little parks in it, and places in the bottom of the canyon is pretty open. But then you'd get up in big timber just outside of the, the canyons. So we were riding along and got down close to that deer lick, looked over there, and there was a big mule deer doe standing there at that salt lick. So I didn't say a word to anybody. I just stopped my horse and eased off of him and reached down and caught these two neck dogs 
and I just buckled the the training collar and it's already plugged in and all that around old Speck's neck and put it up snug, good and snug and unnecked him and just turned around and stepped back on my horse and never said a word. He just started riding right straight towards that deer. Well, it just stood there and looked at us, so we were probably up in 50 yards of it. Then it turned and broke the run. It run across wires is kind of up this other little prong of this canyon, while well, it was fairly, fairly open and then turned up towards the ridge, towards the timber. And old Speck saw that deer run and he just dashed by me and after he went. And I never said a word to him. And after he'd run probably 50 yards on that thing, and he'd already begun to really, he was opening every jump. And uh, I just had this antenna uh, transmitter already, and I'd had the antenna out and up, and I mashed that button, and he just squalled and screamed and jumped right high in there, and when he hit, he just sat down. And I just mashed it again and held it a little bit, and he just jumped right in there and squalled and screamed again and hit right back in the same place and just sat right back down. Well, we had never said a word to him. I just rode on down, rode by him, and rode a little ways past him and got off of my horse like I was looking for a line track and went to just a-looking and a-looking, and this trained dog that I had with that I'd had spec neck to, he thought I was looking for a line track, or he thought I'd seen one or something, and he just went to ringing his tail and a snuffing and a snorting and a looking for a track, and there wasn't nothing there but that deer track. Well, he just looked and looked, and after a while, the old speck got up, come up there to us, and he knew how to work. He'd have to catch quite a lot of game. And I'd hunted him in Mexico. And he'd been in on quite a few of those Jaguars. And he went to smelling, and all he could smell was that deer track. Well, he didn't take it with no them and bigger, but he went to smelling on it, and he trailed it along a little ways and then turned up the hill right where the deer had. I'd seen the deer. And so I walked along in behind him, and he got up there and he started getting faster on this track. And just as he lined out starting to run, well, I think he only opened once. And boy, I sat down on that button. And he just jumped and screamed, and there was a big tree there with the limbs that come down low on it, and he just dived under that tree and laid down. I never said a word to him. I just walked on up there right close to the deer track, and this other dog was still with me looking for the track to run, and we must have fooled around our ten minutes. And so finally, while I was going to get ready to go back to camp, so I just turned around and looked over there at old Speck, and I said, well, Speck, what's the matter with you? What are you doing under that tree? And he just jumped up and run out from under that tree and run right up to me, and rired up and put his feet right up on me. Front feet, like he wanted me to pet him like I could keep that thing from biting him. Well, I petted him and talked to him and then turned around and 
put up my remote control, but I left the collar on him and stepped on my horse and we went on back to camp. And we jumped some deer when we was going back to camp. He smelled of the tracks, but he didn't try to run them. And it was quite a while before he ever, now that didn't break him, but it was quite a while before he ever run another deer. Then I took him to Mexico the next season and lost him, and I think a jaguar killed him. Well, now the uh, electronics collars, trainers, have really come a long way since then. And uh, now they are really a fine product. And at that stage, they were just very crude. And of course, a dummy collar had never been thought of. To have a collar on them, just like the one that was the real McCoy, to, to put it on them to get them used to it so they wouldn't know when you put on the, the real collar. That, of course, uh, in that stage of the game, they had never been thought of. Well, now, far as I know, and to my knowledge, that is the first dog of any kind that was ever shot for doing anything that he shouldn't that I know of. Now, if they'd ever been used and ever been shot by remote control before, I certainly don't know it. Well, then after I saw, I saw that it was going to be when it was really perfected, as near as could be, that that would be a wonderful thing to train dogs with. So Bill Green and uh, Ben Green, I mean, and I, then kind of we kind of formed a company. And he said, "No, now listen." He said, "I can't. I'm kind of a fellow that can't handle the public or get along with them." He said, "Why don't I manufacture them and you sell them, and we will go." 50-50 on the money that is made. After the expenses of the uh, everything is taken out, then what's over will go 50-50. And I said, good enough. Well, what happened? He went to padding the prices on all of the equipment that was going into them. And it didn't take me long to smell a mouse. So I went to him and said, Ben, I want to see your books and see the cost of all that stuff and what you're giving for. And he said, well, my books are not up to date. I said, all right, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Well, I went back, and they still wasn't ready. And I said, Ben, you've had quite a lot of time to get those books all ready, but I said, I'll give you two more weeks. Okay. Well, I left. And when I come back, they still wasn't ready. And so I really got mad then, and I just got up and said, Ben Green, you're crooked, and this is our last business deal, and I'm through with you, and I just turned around and walked out of the house. And so all right then, well, we found another fellow down there that was pretty good with electronics, and he made them a while, and we done pretty good, and then he got to doing the same thing. So then I left and wasn't having anything to do with it, and my niece took it over, and she got another fellow, but it never did work out. And so then she got married and had a very sad marriage, 
And I, as far as I know, I guess she committed suicide and shot herself because she was found with her head blowed off by a 31 automatic. A lot of people said, well, we think that was an accident. Well, I don't know because I wasn't there. But anyway, well, that was the end of the, of the Lee Supply Company. And then everything was put in boxes and sold at an auction. And Tritronics bought everything that was in those boxes. And that was the end of the Lee Supply Company. Now, in that, in that electronics out of business now, it is the best that's made. Now, there are several other colors, but Tritronics is by far. And they have some smart men working in there, and they have done wonders of building up that business and also building up those colors because they have by far the best product of that nature that's ever been put on the market. In the last 15 years, when I went out on a big game hunt, and most of those hunts would last from five days to 14 days, and you've got to have a long list of supplies because you've got to accommodate your clients for all our needs, and you've got to have, take all your all your groceries and everything else to last for that length of time that you're going to be gone. And I don't remember that the Tritronics training equipment wasn't in the list because I used them all the time. And I here's what I think about training dogs now with the Tritronics training equipment. And also the old method where you use the rocks and sticks and cans and ropes and everything else to train a dog with. While you were training two with the old method, you could train eight with the Tritronics method. Now, when you're going out on these hunts, and you maybe you'll be out in the woods from 10 days to a month, and never see any other humans or even a building or anything, and you're in a camp way back in those mountains, and you might say you're right with your dogs night and day and working them and, and training them wrong. Even if you have clients, you're always working one or two young dogs. And... Uh, now, you get to know your dogs by doing that, by being with them all the time and working with them. And there's as much difference in, in hounds as there is just about it as there are humans. All of them have a different temperament, and some of them you've got to almost kill them to, to train them. And those, some of those real hard-headed ones, when you do get them trained, they're honest-to-goodness good hounds, but then you'll find hounds that if you handled them the same, all of them, you would ruin a lot of them. You've got to figure your dog, and you've got to figure how to work him and study that dog. If you don't, you won't have the luck, and that's what it takes to be with your dog a lot and handling him 
and to figure out just exactly how to train him. Now you'll find some dogs that will seem like that they will try to, to please you and want to do as you want them to do and they're the ones that's by far the easiest to train and it doesn't mean if they're that way that they won't have the stuff in them and make top-notch outstanding hounds because a lot of them will. And that's a procedure that I've all worked for many years on training dogs. I would study the dog and his temperament and how to handle him and how to, and how to break him. And lots of people that are trying to train dogs won't take that time and study the dog and know exactly what to expect of him and how to work him. And I think in training dogs that that means a lot.